1: We are dedicated to stories of the paranormal, spine-chilling history, and adventures into the darkness of the unknown. So grab a flashlight, lock your doors, curl up under your blankets, and prepare to be scared.
2: Hello everybody and welcome to the uh Ponte Visions podcast. My name's Brandy and with me as always is my lovely partner, Rachel. Hello hey, Rachel. Hey
1: guys, hey. How's it going, Brandy?
2: That's going slow. How about you?
1: Yeah, it's... This day better wrap up. Yeah. I got got places to go, people to see. Well, clearly. (laughs) Clearly we do. So, um, we'll just get right
2: into it, because this is going to be kind of a little bit longer of an episode than what we usually do. We're going to talk about the legend of Sleepy Hollow, um, and we're actually going to go through and talk a little bit about the legend, but we're going to read the story, uh, which is very interesting. So, I actually... I know the legend of Sleepy Hollow, but I've never read it really. Or if I did, it was so long ago, and I was probably in college when you were a wee lass. When I was a wee lass or <laughs> drunk in college. So, um, so yeah. we're gonna we're gonna read uh, we're gonna read that uh, for your Halloween listening pleasure.
1: Yes, and this was also just another episode that was voted on. Um, if you haven't joined our Facebook group, you can join join our Facebook group at Haunted Visions Podcast. Or like our page, join Mm -hmm. our group, join our discussions, we post some cool stuff there. Um, We took a vote about a month or so ago Mm -hmm. for some Halloween episodes, and quite a few people said that they would like The Legend of Sleepy Hollow read, Um, had a couple messages requesting it. Some people haven't heard it in a really long time, and have really liked the movies that have been out about it, so we're going to read the story, but first, Brandy is going to read you some history... So Halloween is coming, and we couldn't think
2: of a better way to get everyone in the spooky spirit than by exploring the tale of Sleepy Hollow, the author behind it, and some fascinating facts pertaining to the story's creation. As a side note, this topic was the third runner-up for our episodes leading up to Halloween. Our Facebook group voted, and we listened, so without further ado, let's get creepy. Shit's getting weird. Sleepy Hollow is located in New York, about a 30- to 40-minute drive north of Manhattan. It's a beautiful and historic town that sits along the Hudson River and partially and is partially surrounded by woods. It's often described by tourists as a cozy little village that feels like it's frozen in time. It's no wonder it inspired shows like Fox's Sleepy Hollow and the movie Sleepy Hollow starring Christina Ricci, Johnny Depp, and Christopher Walken.
1: Have you ever been walking in a winter wonderland, Nice. Mandy? <laughs> Very nice. <laughs>
2: Now, and I you need to forgive me, I'm gonna try and say it, but it's gonna be bad. <laughs> the area originally was inhabited by the Wekesnek. That's not even close, but forgive me. Uh Native American tribe.
1: Wagasgek, I believe.
2: Okay. I will buy that.
1: Sorry guys, we're gonna butcher it, but it, it is what it is at this point.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> In the early 1600s, Dutch settlers moved into the area and relations with the tribe started out okay. As the years went by, the Dutch in the area began taking over the land's resources and also began having disagreements with the natives. By the mid-1600s, a war broke out between the two groups. The fighting continued until eventually the tribe moved out of the region and German, French, Swiss, and English settlers moved in. In 1883, a small village the small village was named North Terrytown. In the early 1800s, writer Washington Irving was visiting friends in Terrytown and fell in love with the place. He would hunt and fish there and would describe the area as having a spell put upon it. Everywhere he turned, he was amazed by the nature that surrounded him. It inspired him so much that he eventually wrote The Legend of Sleepy Hollow several years later. He based his descriptions of the town Sleepy Hollow in his book off of what he saw in North Terrytown. Washington Irving was born in New York City in 1783. He was the youngest of 11 children, once served in the War of 1812, and even served in the U- as the U.S. Ambassador to Spain in the mid-1800s. His mother named him after George Washington because she was all about the Revolution and was proud to be living in a, in a America post-Revolution. Irving once met George Washington when he was a small boy in a bookstore. Among, among the other famous people he met throughout his life was Sir Walter Scott. Even Charles Dickens gave him raid reviews for his works in The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, The Devil and Tom Walker, and Rip Van Winkle. He led a quiet life, always traveling abroad, and even learned to speak French.
1: So have you, curious, um, in my English class, my 11th grade English class, um, I had to read The Devil and Tom Walker and mm-hmm. do like a mini like summary about it. I freaking love that story. If no one's checked it out, you should check it out. Have you read *Beside Sleepy Hollow? Do you I may have from
2: way, way, way back. Way back.
1: Oh, it's so good. Please, 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 please read it, guys. Yeah. Let me know what you think.
2: I'm very old, so lots of things could <laughs> so have happened. story. <laughs> right. Well, a lot of things could have happened, but I don't remember. Yeah. In 1832, he bought a quaint cottage in Tarrytown that was also surrounded by farmland. The cottage is still in great shape today and was named Sunnyside. Rachel says that really makes her think of eggs. <laughs>
1: it does, and it gives you warm, fuzzy feelings, like you know, that you get at Christmas time. Yes, I, I know signs. those feelings.
2: Uh, he, re- he remained there until his death in 1859. Oddly enough, he was laid to rest in the Sleepy Hollow Cemetery. Terrytown was eventually renamed Sleepy Hollow in 1996 after the GM plant nearby was shut down. After the plant closed, the residents were extremely worried that the town would take a huge financial dive seeing as the plant was one of the main sources of income for the people of the community. So the residents hatched a great plan and renamed the town Sleepy Hollow after Irving's story in order to attract tourists for another source of income. Now, especially since the 1990s, tourists travel to Sleepy Hollow to see the little village that Irving modeled his famous short story after. While they're visiting, they can see many historical sites, including Sunnyside.
1: And Sunnyside is absolutely gorgeous.
2: I'm sure the whole area up there is gorgeous. Now comes the tale of Sleepy Hollow. Dim your lights, lay back and relax. We now are going to read to you one of Irving's great masterpieces. In the bosom of one of those spacious coves which indent the eastern shore of, of the Hudson, at that broad expansion of the river dominated by the ancient Dutch navigators, the Tappan Zee, and where they are always prudently shortened sail and implored the protection of St. Nicholas when they crossed, there lies a small market town, or rural port, which by some is called Greensboro, but which is more generally and properly known by the name of Terrytown. This town was given, we are told, in former days, by the good housewives of the adjacent county. From the inveterate propensity of their husbands to linger about the vision ta- village tavern, on market days be that as it may i do not vouch for the fact but merely avert to it for the sake of being precise and authentic not far from this village perhaps about two miles there is a little valley or rather lap of land amongst the high hills which is one of the quietest places in the whole world a small brook glides through it with just murmur enough to lull one to repose and the occasional whistle of a quail or tapping of a woodpecker is almost the only sound that ever breaks in upon the uniform tranquillity. I recollect that, when a stipling, my first exploit into squirrel shooting was in the grove of tall walnut trees that shade one side of the valley. I had wandered into it at noontime, when all nature is particularly quiet, and was startled by the roar of my own gun as it broke the sabbath stillness all around, and was prolonged and reverberated by the angry echoes. If ever I should wish for a retreat, whether I might steal from the world and its distractions, and drink quietly away the remnant of a troubled life, I know of none more promising than this little valley. From the listless repose of the place, and the peculiar character of its inhabitants, Who are descendants from the original Dutch settlers, this sequestered glen has long been known by the name of Sleepy Hollow, and its rustic lads are called the Sleepy Hollow Boys throughout all the neighboring country. A drowsy, dreamy influence seems to hang over the land, and to pervade the very atmosphere. Some say that the place was bewitched by a high German doctor during the early days of the settlement, others that an old Indian chief, the prophet or wizard of his tribe, Held his powwows there before the country was discovered by Master Hendrick Hudson, certain it is the place still continues under the sway of some witching power that holds a spell over the minds of the good people, causing them to walk in a continual reverie. They are given to all kinds of marvellous beliefs, are subject to cr- trances and visions, and frequently see strange sights and hear music and voices in the air. The whole neighborhood abounds with local tales haunted spots, and twilight superstitions. Stars shoot and meteors glare oftener across the valley than any other part of the country, and the nightmare, with her whole ninefold, seems to make it her favorite scene of her gambles. The dominant spirit, however, that haunts this enchanted region, and seems to be commander-in-chief of all the powers of the air, is an apparition of a figure on horseback without a head. It is said by some to be the ghost of a Hessian trooper, whose head had been carried away by a cannonball in some nameless battle during the Revolutionary War, and who is ever, and anon, seen by the country folk hurrying along in the gloom of the night, as if on the wings of the wind. His haunts are not confined to the valley, but extend at times to the adjacent roads, and especially to the vicinity of a church at no great distance. Indeed, certain of the most authentic historians of these parts, who have been careful in collecting and collating the floating facts concerning this specter, allege that the body of the trooper, having been buried in the churchyard, the ghost rides into the scene of battle in a nightly quest of his head, and that the rushing speed with which he sometimes passes along the hollow, like a midnight blast, is owing to his being belated and in a hurry to get back to the churchyard before daybreak. Such is the general purport of this legendary superstition, which has furnished materials for many a wild story in that region of shadows, and the specter is known at all the country firesides by the name of the Headless Horseman of Sleepy Hollow. It is remarkable that the visionary propensity I have mentioned is not confined to the native inhabitants of the valley but is unconsciously imbibed by every one who resides there for a time. However wide awake they may have seen before they entered that sleepy region, they are sure in little time to inhale the witching influence of the air and begin to grow imaginative to dream dreams and see apparitions. I mention this peace- peaceful spot with all possible laud, for it is in such little retired Dutch valleys, found here and there in- embosomed in the great state of New York, that population, manners, and customs remain fixed, while the great torrent of migration and improvement, which is making such incessant changes in other parts of this restless country, sweeps by them unobserved. They are like those little nooks of still water which border a rapid stream, where we may see the straw and bubble riding quietly at anchor, or slowly revolving in their mimic harbor, undisturbed by the rush of passing current." Though many years have elapsed since I trod the drowsy shades of Sleepy Hollow, yet I question whether I should not still find the same tree and the same families vegetating in its sheltered bosom.
1: Apparently, Washington Irvin really likes the term
2: bosom. Well, he's a very wordy fellow. In this by, place of nature, their abode, in a remote period of American history, there is to say some thirty years since a worthy wight of an of a name, of the name of Ichabod Crane, who sojourned or, as he expressed it, tarried in Sleepy Hollow for the purpose of instructing the children of the vicinity. He was a native of Connecticut, a state which supplies the Union with pioneers for the mind as well as for the forest and sends forth yearly its legions of frontier woodsmen and country schoolmasters. The Congomen of Crane was not inapplicable to his person. He was tall, but exceedingly lank, with narrow shoulders, long arms and legs, hands that dangled a mile out of his sleeves, feet that might have served for shovels, and his whole frame mostly loosely hung together. His head was small and flat on top, with huge ears, large green glassy eyes, and a long snipe nose so that it looked like a weathercock perched upon its spindle neck to tell which way the wind blew. To see him striding along the profile of a hill on a windy day with his clothes bagging and fluttering about him, one might have mistaken him for the genius of famine descending upon the earth or some scarecrow eloped from a cornfield.
1: This poor bastard.
2: (laughs) His schoolhouse was a low building of one large room rudely constructed of logs the windows partly glazed and partly patched with leaves of old copy-books. It was most ingenu- ingenuously secured at vacant hours by a writhe twisted at the handle of the door and stakes set against the window shutters, so that through a th- though a thief might get in with perfect ease, he would find some embarrassment in getting out. An idea most probably borrowed by the architect, Jost Van Houten, from the mystery of the eel-pot the schoolhouse stood in a rather lonely but pleasant situation just at the foot of a woody hill with a brook running close by and a formidable birch-tree growing at one end of it from hence the low murmur of his pupils voices conning over their lessons might be heard on a drowsy summer's day like the hum of a beehive interrupted now and then by the authoritative voice of the master in the in the tone of menace or command or, peradventure, by the appalling sound of the birch, as he urged some tardy loiterer along the flowery path of knowledge. Truth to say, he was a conscientious man, and even bore in mind the golden maxim, spare the rod and spoil the child. Ichabod Crane's scholars certainly were not spoiled. He would not have it imagined, however, that he was one of those cruel potentates of the school who joy in the smart of their subjects. On the contrary, he administered justice with a discrimination rather than severity, taking the burden off the backs of the weak and laying it on those of the strong. Your mere puny stipplings that winced at the least flourish of the rod was passed by with indulgence, but the claims of injustice were satisfied by inflicting a double portion on some little tough wrong-headed broad-skirted dutch urchin who skulked sulked and swelled and grew dogged and sullen beneath the birch all this he called doing his duty by their parents and he never inflicted a chastisement without following it by assurance so conciliatory to the uh, smarting urchin that he would remember it and thank him for the longest day he had to live when school hours were over he was even the companion and playmate of the larger boys, and on holiday afternoons would convey some of the smaller ones home, who happened to have pretty sisters, or good housewives for mother, mothers, noting f- noted for the comforts of the cupboard. Indeed, it behooved him to keep on good terms with his pupils. The revenue arising from his school was small, and he would have, he would have scarcely sufficient, to, and it was scarcely sufficient to furnish him with daily bread, for he was a huge feeder, and though lank, had the dilating powers of an anaconda. But to help out his maintenance, he was, according to a country custom in those parts, boarded and lodged at the houses of the farmers whose children he instructed. With those, he lived successively a week at a time, thus going the rounds of the neighborhood, with all his worldly efforts tied up in a cotton handkerchief. Then all this might not be too onerous on the purses of his rustic patrons who are apt to consider the cost of schooling a grievous burden and schoolmasters as mere drones he had various ways of rendering himself both youth, both useful and agreeable he assisted the farmers occasionally in the lighter labors of their farms helped to make hay mended the fences took the horses to water drove the cows from pasture and cut wood for the winter fire he laid aside too all the dominant di- dignity an absolute sway with which he lorded it in his little empire the school and became wonderfully gentle and ingratiating he found favor in the eyes of the mothers by petting the children particularly the youngest and like the lion bold while willem so magnanimously the lamb did hold he would sit with a child on one knee and rock a cradle with his foot for whole hours together in addition to his other vocations he was the singing master, he was the singing master of the neighborhood, and picked up many bright shillings by instructing the young folks in psalmody. It was a matter of no little vanity to him on Sundays to take his station in front of the church gallery and with a band of a chosen singer, of chosen singers where, in his own mind, he completely carried away the, the palm of the person. Certain it is his voice resounded far above all the rest of the congregation, and there are peculiar quavers still to be heard in that church and which may have been heard half a mile off quite to the opposite side of the mill pond on a still Sunday morning, which are said to be legitimately descended from the nose of Ichabod Crane, thus by divers little makeshifts in that ingenious way, which is commonly. Do- Dominated, denominated—sorry—by hook and by crook, the worthy pedagogue got on tolerably enough, and was thought by all who understood nothing of the labor of headwork to have a wonderful easy life of it. The schoolmaster is generally a man of some importance in the female circle of a rural neighborhood, being considered a kind of idle gentleman-like personages, personage, of vastly superior taste and accomplishments to the rough country swains and indeed inferior in learning only to the person his appearance therefore is apt to occasion some little stir at the tea table of a farmhouse and the addition of supernumerary dish of cakes and sweetmeats or peradventure the parade of teapots our man of letters therefore was particularly happy in the smiles of all the country damsels how he would figure among them in the churchyard between services on Sundays, gathering grapes from them from the wild vines and overran the surrounding trees, reciting for their amusements all the epitaphs on tombstones, or sauntering with a whole bevy of them along the banks of the adjacent mill pond, while the more bashful country bumpkins hung sheepishly back, envying his superior, superior elegance and address. From his half Interent life, also, he was a kind of traveling gazette, carrying the whole budget of local gossip from house to house, so that his appearance was always greeted with satisfaction. He was, moreover, esteemed by the women as a man of great erudition, for he had read several books quite through, and was a perfect master of Cotton Mather's history of New England witchcraft, in which, by the way, he most firmly and potently believed. He was in fact an odd mixture of small shrewdness and simple credulity. His appetite for the Marvelous and his powers of digesting it were equally extraordinary, and both had been increased by his residence in this spellbound region. No tale was too gross or monstrous for his capacious swallow. It was often his delight, after his school was dismissed in the afternoon, to stretch himself on the rich bed of clover bordering the little brook that wimp, whimpered by his schoolhouse, and there con over old Mather's direful tales until the gathering dusk of evening made the printed page a mere mist before his eyes. Then, as he wended his way by swamp and stream and awful woodland to the farmhouse where he happened to be quartered, every sound of nature at that witching hour fluttered his excited imagination. The moan of the whippoorwill from the hillside. The boding cry of the tree toad, that harbinger of storm; the dreary hooting of the screech owl, or the sudden rustling of the thicket of birds frightened from their roost, the fireflies too, which sparkled most vividly in the darkest places, now and then startled him, as one of the uncommon, as one of uncommon brightness, would stream across his path, and if by chance a huge blockhead of a beetle came winging his blundering flight against him the poor varlet was ready to give up the ghost with the idea that he was struck with a witch's, to- witch's token. His only resource on such occasions, either to drown thought, drown in thought or drive away evil spirits, was to sing psalm tunes, and the good people of Sleepy Hollow, as they sat by their doors of an evening, were often filled with awe at hearing his nasal melody in linked sweetness drawn out floating from the distant hill or along the dusky road. Another of his sources of fearful pleasure was to pass long winter evenings with the old Dutch wives as they sat spinning by the fire, with a row of apples roasting and sputtering along the hearth, and listen to their marvelous tales of ghosts and goblins, and haunted fields, and haunted brooks, and haunted bridges, and haunted houses, and particularly of the headless horsemen, or galloping hessian of the hollow as they sometimes called him he would delight them equally by his antidotes of witchcraft and of the direful omens and the portentous sights and sounds in the the air which prevailed in the earlier times of connecticut and would frighten them woefully with the speculations upon comets and shooting stars and with the alarming fact that the world did absolutely turn round and that they were half of the time topsy-turvy but there was a pleasure in all this while snugly cuddling the chimney corner of a chamber that was all of a ruddy glow from the crackling firewood and where of course no specter dared to show its face it was dearly purchased by the terrors of his subsequent walk homewards when what fearful shapes and shadows beset his path amidst the din and ghastly glare of his snowy night With what wistful look did he eye every trembling ray of light streaming across the waste-fields from some distant window? How often he was appalled by some shrub covered with snow, which, like a sheeted specter, beset his very path! How often did he shrink with curdling awe at the sound of his own steps on the frosty crust beneath his feet, and dread to look over his shoulder, lest he should behold some uncouth being tramping close behind him and how often was he thrown into complete dismay by some rushing blast howling amongst the trees and the idea that it was the galloping hessian on one of his nightly scourings all of these however were mere terrors of the night phantoms of the mind that walked in darkness and though he had seen many specters in his time and been more than once beset by satan in the divers shapes in his lonely preambulations, yet daylight put an end to all those evils, and he would have passed a pleasant life of it, in despite of the devil and all of his works, if his path had not been crossed by being that causes more perplexity to mortal man than ghost goblins and the whole race of witches put together, and that was a woman. Among the musical disciples who assembled one evening each week to receive his instructions in psalmody was Katrina van Tassel, the daughter and only child of a substantial Dutch Dutch farmer. She was a blooming lass of fresh eighteen, plump as a partridge, ripe and melting and rosy-cheeked as one of her father's peaches, and universally famed not merely for her beauty, but her vast expectations. She was withal a little of a croquette, as might be perceived even in her dress, which was a mixture of ancient and modern fashions as most suited to set off her charms. She wore the ornaments of pure yellow gold, which her great-great-grandmother had brought over from Saturam, the tempting stomacher of the old time, and withal a provokingly short petticoat, to display the prettiest foot and ankle in the country round. Ichabod Crane had a soft and foolish heart toward the sex, and is not to be wondered At that, so tempting a morsel, soon found favor in his eyes, more especially after he had visited her in her paternal mansion. Old Baltus Van Tassel was a perfect picture of a thriving, contented, liberal-hearted farmer. He seldom, it is true, sent either his eyes or his thoughts beyond the boundaries of his own farm, but within those everything was snug, happy, and well-conditioned. He was satisfied with his wealth, but not proud of it, and piqued himself upon the hardy abundance rather than the style in which he lived. His stronghold was situated on the banks of the Hudson in one of those green, sheltered, fertile nooks in which the Dutch farmers were so fond of nestling. A great elm-tree spread its broad branches over it, at the foot of which bubbled up a spring of the softest and sweetest water, in a little well formed of a barrel and then stole sparkling away through the grass to a neighboring brook that babbled along among alders and dwarf willows. Hard by the farmhouse was a vast barn that might have served for a church, every window and crevice of which seemed to be bursting forth with the treasures of the farm. The flail was busily resounding within it from morning to night. Swallows and Martins skimmed tweetering about the eaves and rows of pigeons some with one eye turned up as if watching the weather some with their heads under their wings or buried in their bosoms and others swelling and cooing and bowing about their dames were enjoying the sunshine on the roof sleek unwieldy porkers were grunting in the repose and abundance of their pins from whence sallied forth now and then troops of suckling pigs as if to sniff the air A stately squadron of snowy geese were riding in an adjoining pond, convoying whole fleets of ducks. Regiments of turkeys were gobbling through the farmyard, and guinea fowls fretted about it like ill-tempered housewives with their peevish, discontented cry. Before the barn door strutted the gallant cock, that pattern of a husband, a warrior, and a fine gentleman, clapping his burnished wings and crowing in the pride. And gladness of his heart, sometimes tearing up the earth with his feet, and then generously calling his ever hungry family of wives and children to enjoy the rich morsel which he had discovered. The pedagogue's mouth watered as he looked upon this sumptu- sumptuous promise of luxurious winter fare. In his devouring mind's eye, he pictured himself every roasting pig running about with a peddling with pudding in his belly and an apple in his mouth. The pigeons were snugly put to bed in a comfortable pie and tucked in with a coverlet of crusts. The geese were swimming in their own gravy, and ducks pairing cost- cozily in dishes like snug married couples with a decent competency of onion sauce. In the porkers he saw carved out the future's sleek side of bacon and juicy relishing ham. Not a turkey, but he beheld daintily trussed up, with its gizzard under its wing, and peradventure, a necklace of savory sausages. And even Bright Chancellor himself lay sprawling on his back, in a side with a side dish, with uplifted claws, as if craving that quarter which his chivalrous spirit disdained to ask while living. As, as enraptured. Ichabod felt fancied all of this, and as he rolled his great green eyes over the fat meadow lands, the rich fields of wheat of rye of buckwheat, and Indian corn, and the orchards burdened with ruddy fruit which surrounded the warm tenement of Van Tassel, his heart yearned after the damsel who was to inherit these domains, and his imagination expanded with the idea how they might readily they might be readily turned into cash and the money invested in immense tracts of wild land and shingle palaces in the wilderness. Nay, his busy fancy already realized his hopes and presented to him the blooming Katrina, with a whole family of children mounted on the top of a wagon loaded with household trumpery, with pots and kettles dangling beneath, and he beheld himself bestriding a pacing mare with a colt at her heels setting out for kentucky tennessee or lord knows where when he entered the, hu- the house the conquest of his heart was complete it was one of those spacious farmhouses with high ridge but lowly sloping roofs built in the style landed handed down from the first dutch settlers the low projecting eaves forming a piazza along the front capable of being closed up in bad weather under this were hung flails harness and various utensils of husbandry, and nets for fishing in the neighboring river. Benches were built along the side for summer use, and a great spinning wheel at one end and a churn at the other showed the various uses to which this important porch might be devoted. From this piazza the wandering Ichabod entered the hall, which formed the center of the mansion, and the place of usual residence. Here rows of resplendent pewter ranged on a long dresser dazzled his eyes in one corner stood a huge bag of wool ready to be spun in another a quantity of lindsey woolsey just from the loom ears of indian corn and strings of dried apples and peaches hung in gay Mm. festoons along the walls mingled with the god of red peppers and a door left ajar gave him a peep into the best parlor where the claw-footed chairs and dark mahogany tables shone like mirrors andirons with their accompanying shovels and tongs, glistened from their covert of asparagus tops. Mock oranges and conch shells decorated the mantelpiece. Strings of various colored bird's eggs were suspended above it. A great ostrich egg was hung from the center of the room, and a corner cupboard, knowingly left open, displayed immense treasure of old silver and well-mended china. From the moment Ichabod laid his eyes upon these regions of delight, the peace of his mind was at an end, and his only study was how to gain the affections of the peerless daughter of Van Tassel. In this enterprise, however, he had more real difficulties than generally fell to a lot of the knight-errant of yore, who seldom had anything but giants, enchanters, fiery dragons, and such like easily conquered adversaries to contend with, And he had to make his way merely through gates of iron and brass and walls of adamant to keep to the castle keep where the lady of his heart was confined all which he achieved as easily as a man would carve his way to the center of a christmas pie and then the lady gave him her hand as a matter of course ichabod on the contrary had to win his way to the heart of a country croquette beset with a labyrinth of whims and caprices, which were forever presenting new difficulties and impediments, and he had to encounter a host of fearful adversaries of real flesh and blood, the numerous rustic admirers who beset every portal to her heart, keeping a watchful and angry eye upon each other, but ready to fly out in the common cause against any new competitor. Among those, the most formidable, was a burly, roaring, roistering blade— of the name of Abraham, or, according to Dutch abbreviation, Bram von Brunt, the hero of the country around, which rang with his feats of strength and hardihood. He was broad-shouldered and double-jointed, with short curly black hair and a bluff but not unpleasant countenance, having a mingled air of fun and arrogance. From his Herculean frame and great powers of limb he had received the nickname of Bram Bones, which, by which he was universally known. He was famed for great knowledge and skill in horsemanship, being as dexterous on horseback as a tartar. He was foremost at all races and cockfights, and with his incendiary, which bodily strength always acquires in rustic life, was the umpire in all disputes, setting his hat on one side and giving his decisions with an air and tone that admitted of no gainsay or appeal." He was always ready for either a fight or a frolic but had had more mischief than ill will in his composition and with all of his overbearing roughness there was a strong dash of waggish good humor at the bottom he had three or four boon companions who regarded him as their model and at the head of what of whom he scoured the country attending every scene of feud or merriment for miles around in cold weather he was distinguished by a fur cap surmounted with a flaunting tail, and when the folks at a country gathering decri- described this well-known crest at a distance, whisking about amongst a squad of hard riders, they always stood by for a squall. Sometimes his crew would be heard dashing along past the farmhouses at midnight with a whoop and a halloo, like a troop of Don Cossacks. And the old dame, startled out of their sleep, would listen for a moment until the hurry-scurry had clattered by, and then exclaimed, "Ay, there goes Brom Bones and his gang." The neighbors looked upon him with a mixture of awe, admiration, and goodwill, and when any madcap prank or rustic brawl occurred in the vicinity, always shook their heads and warranted Brom Bones was at the bottom of it. This rantipole hero had, for some some time. "'singled out the blooming Katrina "'for the object of his uncouth gallantries. "'And though his amorous toyings "'were something like the gentle caress "'and endearments of a bear, "'yet it was whispered that she did not "'altogether discourage his hopes. "'Certain it is, his advances were signals "'for rival candidates to retire, "'who felt no inclination to cross a lion in his armors, "'insomuch that when his horse was seen tied to Van Tassel's pawling on a Sunday night, a sure sign that his master was courting, or, as it is termed, sparking, within, all other suitors passed by in despair, and carried the war into other quarters. Such was the formidable rival with whom Ichabod Crane had to contend with, and considering all things a stouter man, than he would have shrunk from the competition, and a wiser man would have despaired. He had, however, a happy mixture of pliability and perseverance to his nature. He was in form and spirit, like a supplejack, yielding but tough. Though he bent, he was never broke, and although he bowed beneath the slightest pressure, yet, the moment it was away, jerk, he was erect and carried his head as high as ever. To have taken this field openly against his rival would have been madness. For he was not a man to be thwarted in his amours any more than, than that stormy lover, Achilles. Ichabod therefore made his advances in a quiet and gently insinuating manner. Under cover of his character of singing master, he made frequent visits to the farmhouse. Not that he had anything to apprehend from the meddlesome interference of parents, which is so often a stumbling block in the path of lovers. "'Balt von Tassel was an easy, indulgent soul. "'He loved his daughter better even than his pipe, "'and like a reasonable man and an excellent father, "'let her have her way in everything. "'His notable little wife, too, "'had enough to do to attend to her housekeeping "'and manage her poultry, "'for as she she sagely observed, "'ducks and geese are foolish things "'and must be looked after, "'but girls can take care of themselves.' Thus, while the busy dame bustled around the house or plied her spinning wheel at one end of the piazza, honest Balt would sit smoking his evening pipe at the other end, watching the achievements of the little wooden warrior, who, armed with a sword in each hand, was most valiantly fighting the wind on the pinnacle of the barn. In the meantime, Ichabod would carry on his suit with the daughter by the side of the spring under the great elm or sauntering along in the twilight that hour so favorable to the lover's eloquence i profess not to know how women's hearts are wooed and won to me they have always been matters of riddle and admiration some seem to have but one vulnerable point or door of access while others have a thousand avenues and may be captured in a thousand different ways it is a great triumph of skill to gain the former but a still greater proof of generalship to maintain possession of the latter for man must battle for his fortress at every every door and window he who wins a thousand common hearts is therefore entitled to some renown but he who keeps undisputed sway over the heart of a croquette uh, or coquette i'm sorry is indeed a hero certain it is this was not the case with the redoubtable Brombones. And from the moment Ichabod Crane made his advances, the interest of the former evidently declined. His horse was no longer seen tied to the palings on Sunday nights, and a deadly feud gradually arose between him and the Perceptor of Sleepy Hollow. Brom, who had a degree of rough chivalry to his nature, would fain have ca- would fain have carried matters to open warfare and have settled their pretensions to the lady according to the mode of those most concise and simple reasoners the knight's errant of yore, by single combat, but Ichabod was too conscious of the superior might of his adversary to enter the list against him. He had overheard a boast of Bones that he would double the schoolmaster up and lay him on a shelf of his own schoolhouse, and he was too wary to give him an opportunity. There was something extremely provoking on this obstinately pacific system. It, Brahm no, it left Brom no alternative but to draw upon the funds of rustic waggery in his disposition, and to play off boorish pra- practical jokes upon his rival. Ichabod became the object of whimsical persecution to Bones and his gang of rough riders. They harried his hitherto peaceful domain, smoked out his singing school by stopping up the chimney, broke into the schoolhouse at night, in spite of its formidable Formidable fastenings of writhe and window stakes, and turned everything topsy-turvy, so that the poor schoolmaster began to think all the witches in the country held their meetings there. But it was still more annoying. But what was still more annoying was that Bram took opportunities of turning him into ridicule in the presence of his mistress, and had a scoundrel dog whom he taught to whine in the most ludicrous manner, and introduced as a rival of Ichabod's to instruct her in psalmody. In this way matters went on for some time, without producing any material effect on the relative situations of the contending powers. On a fine, autumnal afternoon, Ichabod, in a pensive mood, sat enthroned on the lofty stool from whence he usually watched all the concerns of his little literary realm. In his hand he swayed a furule, that scepter of despotic power. The birch of justice reposed on three nails behind the throne. A constant terror to evildoers, while on the deck, desk before him, might be seen sundry contraband articles and prohibited weapons detected upon the persons of idle urchins, such as half-munched apples, pop-guns, fly-cages, and whole legions of rampant little paper gamecocks. Apparently, there had been some appalling act of justice recently inflicted, for his scholars were all busily intent upon their books, or slyly whispering behind them with one eye kept on the master, and a kind of buzzing stillness reigned throughout the schoolroom. So, at this point, I'm just going to summarize, because the um, the text actually uses some, some derogatory terms, uh, but Ichabod, a guy shows up on Ichabod's doorstep at the schoolhouse, and invites him to a soiree at a Van Tassel's house. So um, so that is, that's what's going on up until this point. He gets invited to this little soiree.
1: All was now bustle and hubbub in the late, quiet schoolroom. The scholars hurried through their lessons without stopping at trifles. Those who were nimble skipped over half with impunity, and those who were tardy had a smart application now, and then in the rear, to quicken their speed or help them over a tall word. Books were flung aside without being put away on the shelves, inkstands were overturned, benches thrown down, and the whole school was turned loose an hour before the usual time, bursting forth like a legion of young imps, yelping and racketing about the green and joy at their early emancipation. The gallant Ichabod now spent at least an extra half hour at his toilet, brushing and furbishing up his best, and indeed only suit of rusty black, and arranging his locks by a bit of broken-looking glass that hung up in the schoolhouse. That he might make his appearance before his mistress in true style of cavalier, he borrowed a horse from the farmer with whom he was domiciled, a choleric old Dutchman of the name of Hans von Ripper, and thus gallantly mounted, issued forth like a knight, errant in quest of adventures. But it is meet I should, and the true spirit of romantic story gives some account of the looks and equipments of my hero and his steed. The animal he bestrode was a broken-down plow horse, and had outlived almost everything but its viciousness. He was gaunt and shagged, with ewe neck and a head like a hammer. His rusty mane and tail were tangled and knotted with burrs. One eye had lost its pupil, and glaring and spectral but the other had the gleam of a genuine devil in it. Still, he must have had fire and metal in his day, if we may judge from the name he bore of gunpowder. He had, in fact, been a favorite steed of his masters, the choleric Van Ripper, who was a furious rider, and had infused, very probably, some of his own spirit into the animal. For, old and broken down as he looked, there was more of lurking devil in him than any young filly in the country. Ichabod was a suitable figure for such a steed. He rode with short stirrups, which brought his knees nearly up to the pommel of his saddle. His sharp elbow stuck out like a grasshopper's. He carried whip perpendicularly his hand like a specter, and as his horse jogged on, the motion of his arms was not unlike the flapping of a pair of wings. A small wool hat rested on the top of his nose, for so his scanty strip of forehead might be called, and the skirts of his black coat fluttered about almost to the horse's tail. Such was the appearance of Ichabod and his steed as they shambled out of the gate of Hans von Ripper, and it was altogether such an apparition as in seldom to be met with broad daylight. It was, as I have said, a fine, autumnal day. The sky was clear and serene, and nature wore that rich and golden livery which we always associate with the idea of abundance. The forest had put on their sober brown and yellow, while some trees of the tenderer kind had been nipped by the frost into brilliant dyes of orange, purple, and scarlet. Streaming flies of wild ducks began to make their appearance high in the air. The bark of the squirrel might be heard from the groves of beech and hickory nuts, and the pensive whistle of a quail at intervals from the neighboring stubble fields. The small birds were taking their farewell banquets. In the fullness of their revelry, they fluttered, chirping and frolicking from bush to bush and tree to tree, capricious from the very profusion and variety around them. There was the honest cock-robin, the favorite game of stripling sportsmen, and with its loud choleric note, and the twittering blackbirds flying in stable clouds, and the golden-winged woodpecker with its crimson crest, his broad black gorget, and splendid plumage, and the cedar birds, with its red-tipped wings and yellow-tipped tail, and its Monterio cap of feathers. And the blue jay that noisy cocks come in his gay light blue coat and white underclothes, screaming and chattering, nodding and bobbing and blowing, and pretending to be on good terms with every stronger of the grove. As Ichabod jogs slowly on his way, his eyes ever open to every symptom of culinary abundance, ranged with delight over the treasures of the jolly autumn. All on sides he beheld vast store of apples, some hanging in oppressive opulence on the trees, some gathered into baskets and barrels for the market, others heaped up in rich piles for the cider-press. Farther he beheld great green fields of Indian corn, with his golden ears peeping from their leafy coverts, and holding the promise of cakes and hasty-pudding, and the yellow pumpkins lying beneath them "'turning up their fair round bellies to the sun "'and giving ample prospects of the most luxurious of pies. "'And anon he passed the fragrant buckwheat fields, "'breathing the odor of the beehive. "'As he beheld them, soft anticipations stole over his mind "'of dainty slapjacks, well-buttered and garnished with honey or tracle, "'by the d- delicate little dimpled hand of Katrina Van Tassel, "'thus feeding his mind with many sweet thoughts and sugared suspicions.' He journeyed along the sides of a range of hills which he looked out upon some of the godless scenes of the mighty hudson the sun gradually wheeled his broad disc down in the west the wide bosom of the Tappan sea lay motionless and glassy excepting that here and there a gentle undulation of waves and prolonged the blue shadow of the distant mountain A few amber clouds floated in the sky without a breath of air to move them. The horizon was a fine golden tint, changing gradually into a pure apple green, and from that into the deep blue of the mid-heaven. A slanting ray lingered on the woodly crests of the precipices that hung over some parts of the river, giving greater depth to the dark grey and purple of their rocky sides. A sloop was loitering in the distance, dropping slowly down with the tide her sail hanging uselessly against the mast, and as the reflection of the sky gleamed along the still water, it seemed as if the vessel was suspended in air. It was towards evening that Ichabod arrived at the castle of Heer Van Tassel, which he found thronged with the pride and flower of the adjacent country. Old farmers, a spare leathern-faced race, in homespun coats and breeches, blue stockings, huge shoes, and magnificent pewter buckles. Their brisk, withered little dames in cloth-crimped caps, long-waisted short gowns, homespun petticoats with scissors and pin-pushions, and gay calico pockets hanging on the outside. Buxom lasses, almost as antiquated as their mothers, excepting with their straw hats, a fine ribbon, or perhaps a white frock, gave symptoms of city innovation. The sons, in short-skirted coats, "'with rows of spudacious brass buttons, "'and they're generally cued in the fashion of the times, "'especially if they could procure an eel-skin for their purpose, "'it being esteemed throughout the country "'as a potent nourisher and strengthener of the hair. "'Brom Bones, however, was the hero of the scene, "'having come to the gathering on his favorite steed, Daredevil, "'a creature like himself, full of metal and mischief, "'and which no one but himself could manage. "'He was, in fact, noted for preferring vicious animals,' given to all kinds of tricks, which kept the rider in constant risk of his neck, for he held a tropical, well-broken horse, and unworthy of a lad of spirit. Fain would I pause to dwell upon the world of charms that burst upon the enraptured gaze of my hero as he entered the state parlor of the von Tassel's mansion. Not those of the bevy buxom lasses, with their luxurious display of red and white, but the ample charms of a genuine Dutch country tea-table in the sumptuous time of autumn, some such heaped of platters of cakes and various and almost indescribable kinds, known only to be experienced Dutch housewives. There was the doughty donut, the tender oolie, and the crisp and crumbling cruller, sweet cakes and short cakes, ginger cakes and honey cakes, and the whole family of cakes. And then there were apple pies and peach pies and pumpkin pies, besides slices of ham and smoked beef and moreover delectable dishes of preserved plums and peaches and pears and quinces, not to mention broiled shad and roasted chickens, together with bowls of milk and cream, all mingled higgly-piggly, pretty much as I have enumerated up, with the motherly teapot sending it from its clouds of vapors from the midst. Heaven bless the mark. I want breath and time to discuss this banquet as it deserves, Am too eager to get on with my story. Happily, Ichabod Crane was not in such great a hurry as this historian but did ample justice to every dainty he was a kind and thankful creature whose heart dilated in proportion as his skin was filled with good cheer and whose spirits rose with eating as some men's do with drink he could not help too rolling his large eyes around him as he ate and chuckling with the possibility that he might one day be lord of all this scene of almost unimaginable luxury and splendor then he thought soon he turned his back upon the old schoolhouse, snap his fingers in the face at the Von Tassel r- Ripper and every other patron, and kick any internet pedagogue out of the doors and should dare to call him comrade. Old Baltus Van Tassel moved among his guests with a face dilated with content and good humor, round and jolly as the harvest moon. His hospitable attentions were brief, but expressive, being confined to a shake of the hand, a slap on the shoulder, a loud laugh, and a pressing invitation to fall to and help themselves. And now the sound of the music from the common room or hall summoned to the dance. The musician was an old gray-headed man who had been itinerant orchestra of the neighborhood for more than half a century. His instrument was an old, it was as old as battered as himself. The greater part of the time he scraped on two or three strings, accompanying every movement of the bow with a motion of the head, bowing almost to the ground, and stamping with his foot whenever a fresh couple were to start. Ichabod prided himself upon his dancing as much as upon his vocal powers. Not a limb and not a fiber about him was idle, and to have seen his loosely hung frame in full motion and clattering about the room, you would have thought it was St. Vitus himself, that blessed patron of dance, was figuring before you in person. He was the admiration of all men, who, having gathered of all ages and sizes from the farm and from the neighborhood, stood forming a pyramid of faces at every door and window, gazing with delight at the scene, and rolling their eyes, and showing grinning rows of ivory from ear to ear. How could the flogger of urchins be otherwise than animated and joyous? The lady of his, thus heart was partner in the dance and smiling graciously in reply to all his amorous ogglings, while Brom bones sorely smitten with love and jealousy sat brooding by himself in a corner when the dance was at an end ichabod was attracted to a knot of the sager folks who with old Van Tassel, sat smoking at one end of the piazza gossiping over former times and drawing out long stories about the war this neighborhood at the time of which i am speaking was one of the highly favored places which abound with chronicle and great men. The British and American line had run near during the war. It had, therefore, been the scene of marauding and infested with refugees, cowboys, and all kinds of border chivalry. Just sufficient time had elapsed to enable each storyteller to dress up his tale with a little becoming fiction and, in the indistinctness of his recollection, to make himself the hero of every exploit. There was a story of Dofew Martling, a large blue-bearded Dutchman, who had nearly taken a British frigate with an old iron nine-pounder from a mud breastwork, only that his gun burst at the sixth discharge. And there was an old gentleman, who shall be nameless, being too rich a mineer to be lightly mentioned, who, in the battle of White Plains, being an excellent master of defense, parried a musket ball with a small sword insomuch that he absolutely felt it whizzing around the blade and glance off at the hilt, in proof of which he was ready, at any time, to show the sword with the hilt a little bent. And there were several more that had been equally great in the field, not one of whom was persuaded that he had an inconsiderable hand in bringing the war to a happy termination. But all these were nothing to the tales of ghosts and apparitions that succeeded. The neighborhood is its rich legendary treasures of the kind, Local tales and superstitions thrive best in the sheltered, long-settled retreats, but are trampled underfoot by the shifting throng that forms the population of most of our country's places. Besides, there is no encouragement for ghosts in most of our villages, for they have scarcely had time to finish their first nap and turn themselves in their graves before their surviving friends have traveled away from the neighborhood, so that when they turn out night to walk their rounds, they have no acquaintance left to call upon. This is perhaps the reason why we so seldom hear of ghosts except our long-established Dutch communities. The immediate cause, however, of the prevalence of supernatural stories in these parts was doubtless owing to the vicinity of Sleepy Hollow. There was a, a contagion in the very air that blew from the haunted region. It breathed forth an atmosphere of dreams and fancies infecting all the land. Several of the Sleepy Hollow people were present at Van Tassels and, as usual, were dulling their wild and wonderful legends. Many dismissal tales were told about funeral trains and mourning cries and Wailing's heard and seen about the great tree where the unfortunate Major Andre was taken, and which stood in the neighborhood. Some mention it was also a woman in white that haunted the dark glen at Raven Rock, and was often heard to shriek on winter nights before a storm, having perished there in the snow. The chief part of the stories, however, turned upon the favorite specter of Sleepy Hollow, the headless horseman, who had been heard several times of late patrolling the country, and it was said tethered his horse nightly among the graves in the churchyard. The sequestered situation of this church seems always to have had its favorite haunt of troubled spirits. It stands on a knoll surrounded by locust trees and lofty elms, from among which indecent whitewashed walls shine modesty forth like Christian purity beaming through the shades of retirement, A gentle slope descends from its silver sheet of water, bordered by high trees between which peeps may be caught of the blue hills of the Hudson. To look upon its grass-grown yard, where the sunbeams seem to sleep so quietly, one would think that there was at least the dead might rest in peace. On one side of the church extends a wide woody dell, among which raves a large brook among broken rocks and trunks of fallen trees. Over a black part of the stream, not far from the church, was formerly thrown a wooden bridge. The road that led it and the bridge itself were thickly shaded by overhanging trees, which cast a gloom about it even in the daytime, but occasioned a fearful darkness at night. Some was one of the favorite haunts of the Headless Horseman, and the place where he was most frequently encountered. The tale was told of Old Brower, a most heretical disbeliever in ghosts, how he met the horseman returning from his foray into Sleepy Hollow, and was obliged to get up behind him. Now they had galloped over bush and brake, over hill and swamp, until they reached the bridge, when suddenly the horseman turned into a skeleton, and threw old Brower into the brook, and sprang away over the treetops with a clap of thunder. The story was immediately matched by a thrice marvelous adventure of Brom Bones, who made the light of Galloping Hessian as an arrogant jockey. He affirmed that on returning one night from the neighboring village of Sing Sing, he had been overtaken by this midnight trooper, that he had offered the race with him for a bowl of punch, and should have won it too, for Daredevil beat the goblin horse all hollow, but just as they came up to the church bridge, the Hessian bolted and vanished in a flash of fire. All these tales, told in that drowsy undertone, with which men talk in the dark countesses of the listeners only now and then receiving a casual gleam from the glare of a pipe sank deep in the mind of ichabod he repaid them in kind with large extracts from his invaluable author cotton mather and added many marvelous events that had taken place in his native state of connecticut and fearful sights which he had seen in his nightly walks around sleepy hollow the revel now gradually broke up the old farmer's Gathered together their families and their wagons, and were heard for some time rattling along the hollow roads and over the distant hills. Some of the damsels, mounted on pillions, behind their favourite swains, and their light hearted laughter, mingling with the clatter of hoofs, echoed along the silent woodlands, sounding fainter and fainter until they gradually died away, and the late scene of the noise and frolic was all silent and deserted. Ichabod only lingered behind, according to the custom of country lovers. To have one last time with the heiress, fully convinced that he was now on high road to success. What passed, as this interview, I will not pretend to say, for in fact I do not know. Something, however, I fear me, must have gone wrong, for he certainly sallied forth, in no very great interval, with an air quite desolate and chat fallen. Oh, these women, these women, could that girl have been playing off any of her coyish tricks? Was her encouragement of the poor pedagogue all a mere sham to secure her conquest of his rival? Heaven only knows, not I. Let it suffice to say, Ichabod stole forth with the air of one who had been sacking a hen roost rather than a fair lady's heart. Without looking to the right or left to notice the scene of rural wealth, on which he had so often gloated, he went straight to the stable, and with several hearty cuffs and kicks roused his steed most uncourteously from the comfortable quarters in which he was soundly sleeping, dreaming of mountains of corn and oats, and whole valleys of timothy and clover. And it was this very witching time of night that Ichabod, heavy-hearted and crestfallen, pursued his travels homewards, along the sights of the lofty hills which rise above Tarrytown, and which he had traversed so cheerily the afternoon before. The hour was as dismal as himself." Far below him in Tappan's spread its dusky and indistinct waste of waters, with here and there the tall mast of sloop, riding quietly in anchor under the land in the dead hush of midnight. He could even hear the barking of the watchdog from the opposite shore of the Hudson. But it was so vague and faint as only to give an idea of his distance from the faithful companion of man. Now and then, too, the long-drawn cocking of a crow accidentally awakened, would sound far, far off from some farmhouse far away among the hills. But it was like a dreaming sound in his ear. No signs of life occurred near him, but occasionally the melancholy chirp of a cricket, or perhaps the guttural twang of a bullfrog from a neighboring marsh, as if sleeping uncomfortably and turning suddenly in his bed. All the stories of ghosts and goblins that he had heard in the afternoon now came crowding upon his recollection. The night grew darker and darker. The stars seemed to sink deeper into the sky, and driving clouds occasionally hid them from his sight. He had never felt so lonely and dismal. He was, moreover, approaching the very place where many of the scenes of the ghost stories had been laid. In the center of the road stood an enormous tulip tree, which towered like a giant above all the other trees in the neighborhood, and formed kind of a landmark. Its limbs were gnarled and fantastic, large enough to form trunks for ordinary trees, twisting down almost to the earth and rising again into the air. It was connected with the tragical story of an unfortunate Andre who had t- taken a prisoner hard by and was universally known by the name of Major Andre's Tree. The common people regarded it with a mixture of respect and superstition, partly out of sympathy for the fate of this ill-stared namesake and partly from the tales of strange sights and doleful laminations told concerning it. As Ichabod approached this fearful tree, he began to whistle. He thought his whistle was answered. It was but a blast, sweeping sharply through the dry branches. As he approached a little nearer, he thought he saw something white hanging in the midst of the tree. He paused and ceased whistling, but on looking more narrowly, perceived that it was a place where the tree had been scratched by lightning and the white wood laid bare. Suddenly he heard a groan, and his teeth chattered, and his knees smote against the saddle. It was but the rubbing of one huge bough upon another as they were swayed about in the breeze. He passed the tree in safety, but knew the perils lay before him. About two hundred yards from the tree, a small brook crossed the road and ran into a marshy and thickly wooded glen known by the name of Wiley Swamp. A few rough logs. "'laid side by side, served for a bridge over the stream. "'On that side of the road where the brook entered the wood, "'a group of oaks and chestnuts, matted thick and wild grapevines, "'threw a cavernous gloom over it. "'To pass this bridge was the Severus tri- Trial. "'It was this identical spot that the unfortunate Andre was captured, "'and under the covert of these chestnuts and vines "'were the sturdy yeomen U- concealed, which surprised him.' This has ever since been considered a haunted stream, and fearful are the feelings of this schoolboy, who has to pass it alone after dark. As he approached the stream, his heart began to thump. He summoned up, however, all his resolution, gave his horse half a score of kicks in the ribs, and attempted to dash briskly across the bridge. But instead of starting forward, the perverse old animal made a lateral movement and ran broadside against the fence. Ichabod, whose fears increased with this delay, jerked the reins on the other side and kicked lustily with the contrary foot. It was all in vain. His steed started, it is true, but it was only to plunge to the opposite side of the road into a thicket of brambles and elder bushes. The schoolmaster now bestowed both whip and heel upon the starveling ribs of an old gunpowder, who dashed forward, snuffling and snorting, but came to stand just by the bridge. With... "'a suddenness that had nearly sent his rider sprawling overhead. "'Just as the moment of plashy tramp by the side of the bridge "'caught the sensitive ear of Ichabod, in the dark shadow of the grove on the margin of the brook, "'he beheld something huge, misshapen and towering, It stirred not, but seemed gathered up in the gloom, "'like some gigantic monster ready to spring upon the traveller. "'The hair of the frightened pedagogue "'rose upon his head with terror with what was to be done.' To turn and fly was now too late, and besides, what chance was there of escaping ghost or goblin, if such it was, which could ride upon the wings of the wind? Summoning up, therefore, a show of courage, he demanded in stammering accents, Who are you? He received no reply. He repeated this demand in still more agitated voice, and still there was no answer. Once more he cajelled the side of the inflexible gonpelder and, shutting his eyes, broke forth with involuntary fervor into a psalm-tune. Just then the shadowy object of alarm put itself in motion, and with a scramble and bound stood at once in the middle of the road. Though the night was dark and dismal, yet the form of the unknown might now in some degree be ascertained. He appeared to be a horseman of large dimensions, and mounted on a black horse of powerful frame. He made no offer of molestation or sociability, but kept aloof on one side of the road, "'jogging along on the blind side of old gunpowder "'who had now got over his fright and waywardness. "'Ichabod, who had no relish for this strange midnight companion "'and bethought himself of the adventure of Brom Bones "'with the galloping Hessian, "'now quickened his steed in hopes of leaving him behind. "'The stranger, however, quickened his horse to an equal pace. "'Ichabod pulled up and fell into a walk, thinking, "'thinking to lag behind. "'The other did the same. "'His heart began to sink within him.' He endeavored to resume his psalm tune, but his parched tongue clove to the roof of his mouth, and he could not utter a stave. There was something in the moody and dogged silence of this pertinacious companion that was mysterious and appalling. It was so- It was soon fearfully accounted for on mounting a rising ground which brought the figure of his fellow traveler in relief against the sky, gigantic in height and muffled in a cloak, Ichabod was horror struck on perceiving that it was headless, and his horror was still more increased on observing that saddle. His tear rose in desperation. He rained a shower of kicks and blows upon gunpowder, hoping by a sudden movement to give his companion the slip, but the spectre started full jump with him. Away then, they dashed through the thick and the thin, stones flying and sparks flashing at every bound, Ichabod's flimsy garments fluttering in the air as he stretches long lank body away from the horse, horse's head, but in eagerness of his flight. They had now reached the road, which turns off to Sleepy Hollow. But Gunpowder, who seemed possessed with a demon instead of keeping up it, made an opposite turn and plunged headlong down the hill to the left. This road leads through a sandy hollow shaded by trees for about a quarter of a mile, where it crosses the bridge famous to the Goblin Story, "'and just beyond swells of the green knoll "'on which stands the whitewashed church. "'As yet the panic of the steed "'had given his unskillful rider "'an apparent advantage in the chase, "'but just as he had got halfway around the hollow, "'the girth of the saddle gave way, "'and he fell into slipping from under him. "'He seized it by the pommel "'and endeavored to hold it firm, but in vain, "'and had just time to save himself "'by clasping gunpowder round the neck. "'When the saddle fell to the earth,' and he heard the trampled underfoot by the pursuer. For a moment, the terror of Hans von Ripper's wrath passed across his mind, for it was his Sunday saddle, but this was no time for petty fears. The goblin was hard on his haunches, and, unskillful rider that he was, he had too much ado to maintain his seat, sometimes slipping on one side, sometimes on another, and sometimes jolted on the high ridge of his horse's backbone with a violence that he verily feared, would cleave him asunder. An opening in the trees now cheered him with the hopes that the church bridge was at hand. The wavering reflection of a silver star in the bosom of the brook told him that he was not mistaken. He saw the walls of the church dimly glaring under the trees beyond. He recollected the place where Brom Bones's ghost competitor had disappeared. If I can but reach that bridge, thought Ichabod, I am safe." Just then he heard the black steed panting and blowing close behind him, and he even fancied that he felt his hot breath. Another convulsive kick to the ribs and old Gunpowder sprang upon the bridge. He thundered over the resounding planks, and he gained the opposite side. And now Ichabod cast a look behind him to see if his pursuer should vanish, according to the rule, in a flash of fire and brimstone. But just then he saw the goblin rising in his stirrups, and the very act of hurling his head at him. Ichabod endeavored to dodge the horrible missile, but too late, and encountered his cranium with a tremendous crash, and he was tumbled headlong into the dust, and Gunpowder, the Black Steed, and the Goblin Rider passed by like a whirlwind. The next morning the old horse was found without his saddle, and with the bridle under his feet, slobberly cropping the grass at his master's gate. Ichabod did not make an appearance at breakfast. Dinner hour came, but no Ichabod. The boys assembled at the schoolhouse and strolled idly about the banks of the brook, but no schoolmaster. Hans Van Ripper now began to feel some uneasiness about the fate of poor Ichabod and his saddle. An inquiry was set on foot, and after diligent investigation they came upon his traces. In one part of the road leading to the church was found the saddle trampled in the dirt. The tracks of horses hoofs deeply dented in the road and evidently at curious speed, were traced to the bridge beyond which, on the bank of the broad of the brook, where the water ran deep and black, was found the hat of an unfortunate Ichabod, and close behind it a shattered pumpkin. The brook was stretched, but the body of the schoolmaster was not to be discovered. Hans von Ripper, as executor of his estate, examined the bundle which contained all his worldly effects. They consisted of two shirts and a hat, two stocks for the neck, a pair of two worsted stockings, an old pair of corduroy small Clothing, a rusty razor, a book of psalm tunes from his early years, and a broken pitch pipe. As the books and furniture of the schoolhouse, they belonged to the community, expecting Cotton Mather's History of Witchcraft, a New England almanac, and a book of dreams and fortune telling, in which last was a sheet of foolscape, much scribbled and blotted, and several fruitless attempts to make a copy of verses in honor of the heiress of Van Tassel. These magic books and the poetic scrawl were forthwith consigned to the flames by Hans von Ripper, who, from that time forward, determined to send his children no more to school, observing that he never knew any good to come of this same reading and writing. Whatever money the schoolmaster possessed, and he received his quarter's pay but a day or two before, he must have had about his person at the time of his disappearance. The mysterious event caused much speculation at the church on the following Sunday, Knots of gazers and gossips were collected in the churchyard, at the bridge, and at the spot where the hat and pumpkin had been found. The stories of Brower, of Bones, and a whole budget of others were called to mind. And when they had diligently considered them all and compared them with the symptoms of the present case, they shook their heads and came to the conclusion that Ichabod had been carried off by the Galpin Hessian. As he was a bachelor, and I know what he's dead, no one troubled his head any more about him. The school was removed to a different quarter of the hollow, and another pedagogue reigned in his stead. It is true, an old farmer who had been down to New York on a visit several years after, and from whom his account of the ghostly adventure was received, bought home the intelligence that Ichabod Crane was maybe still alive, and he had left the neighborhood partly through fear of the goblin and Hans Van Ripper, and partly in mortification of having been suddenly dismissed by the heiress, that he had changed his quarters to a distant part of the country, had kept school and studied law at the same time, but had been admitted to the bar, turned politician, electioneered, written for the newspapers, and finally had been made a justice of the ten-pound court. Brom Bones, too, who shortly after his rival's disappearance conducted the Blooming Katrina in triumph to the altar, was observed to look exceedingly knowing whenever the story of Ichabod was related, and also burst into a hearty laugh at the mention of the pumpkin, which led some to suspect that he knew more about the matter than he chose to tell. The old country wives, however, who are the best judges of these matters, maintain to this day that Ichabod was spirited away by supernatural means, and is a favorite sto- it is a favorite story, often told about the neighborhood, around the winter fire evenings. The bridge became more than ever an object of superstitious awe, and that may be the reason why the road had been altered as later years, so as to approach the church by the border of the mill pond. The schoolhouse being deserted soon fell to decay and was reported to be haunted by the ghost of the unfortunate pedagogue and a ploughboy loitering homeward of a still summer evening, as often fancied his voice at a distance, chanting a melancholy psalm tune. Among the tranquil solitudes of Sleepy Hollow. So, that's the story of Washington Irving's Sleeping Hollow. What do you think, Brandy?
2: He's very wordy.
1: Oh, God. So many sentences. So
2: so many words.
1: So many words. And he liked a lot to use commas a lot. Ugh.
2: (laughs) But a wonderful story. I grew up on that story. It's a great story.
1: I did, too. I remember watching the Disney version, the animated Mm -hmm, version mm -hmm. of Sleepy Hollow. I think that was... This day probably
2: still more of my favorite than the uh, Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow with Johnny Depp. All right. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So that concludes our episode of Sleepy Hollow. We want to give a big thank you uh, and shout out to Mike Brown of Pleasing Terrors uh, who has been so kind as to promote us on his podcast and just be a general good guy. So if you haven't been over to that podcast, um, give it a listen. He's very, very good. He's very interesting and a, just a really, really nice guy. Um, and what else do we need?
1: If you guys want to check out our Facebook, you can follow us, um, on Facebook under Haunted Visions Podcast, or join our closed group where we share a lot of spooky stories, creepy pictures, things about cryptids, um, some UFO things here and there as well, um, at Haunted Visions Podcast, um, and then
2: where can they find our Patreon if they want to donate to our cause, Randy? Well, if they want to donate to our cause... You can go to patreon.com backslash Haunted Visions, uh, and you should be able to uh, just give us a little something. Uh, There is cost associated with putting on a podcast, and every little bit helps.
1: Absolutely, and thanks to Story and uh, Christine Bourgeois for your donations. They are much appreciated. Yes, ma'am. Is there anything else you want to add? sightings, things that are just unexplained or stories of supernatural phenomenon, um, you can email us your stories and we will read them on the podcast. Um, we're skipping our Ghastly Ghost corner today simply because of the length of the story and the history that we presented to you. Um, but we will be back next recording um, to share more Ghastly Ghost stories. I have a couple stories lined up from some of our listeners. Thank you. But you can go to um, Email us at hauntedvisionspodcast at gmail dot com, and we will review those and get back to you. Typically, we respond within twenty four to forty eight hours, but you can hit us up on there or message us um, at Facebook.
2: Yes, ma'am. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening, and have a great day.